lift your hand, we'll get one right to you. And then please open them up to Genesis chapter 27, the Gospel of Genesis chapter 27 today. Let's go to the Lord right in prayer. Father, thank You so much that we could come before You in prayer and expect You to do great and glorious things. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would just come upon me, Lord, in a way that, that Lord, first of all, You would immerse me in Your Spirit, that I would be baptized, immersed in Your Spirit in such a way that I would disappear and You would appear. Lord, You would come upon me in such a way, Lord, that You would minister to and through me. And that upon each of us, Lord, that our ears would be able to hear, our eyes would be able to see, our minds would be able to comprehend. We recognize, God, that can only happen as a work of Your Spirit. So we pray You would do so. That Your Scripture would burst open and come alive before us today. And as Your Scripture comes alive before us today, that we would gain more than information. But that we would be people today that would be transformed by Your Word. We pray, Lord, today that You would do a great and glorious thing in each of us. Speaking to us individually, Lord, as well as corporately. And Father, that You would minister in such a way, Lord, that we would come to You with hands empty. With, with no agenda other than expectation of what You want to do in this time. So God, we pray that You would supernaturally give us all the ability to understand this text to the very best You intend it to be. And Lord, show us deep and beautiful and glorious things in it. Relate it to each of us individually right where we're at so we could recognize our need today for You. And in that, Lord, I pray that You would lead us to the cross. That You would lead us to Your glory. And in that, Father, we would find ourselves forever translated forever revolutionized by this time. So Lord, bring salvation. Bring encouragement. Bring a hope. Bring challenge. May we all walk out of here refreshed and encouraged and better off. So we commit this time to You. Redeem every second we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your final authority. Go back to verse of chapter 26, verse 34, please. It tells us this. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and Basmat, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind. Marach, like the... Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. And the word Ruach, like spirit. In other words, they were a bitterness of spirit to Isaac and Rebekah. That's our time stamp right here. We know that Isaac was 40 years old when he, found, when he um, got his wife, Rebekah. We know that they, it took 20 years for them to have children. That makes him 60. The children were twins, still are here. It's two princes of a king, so to speak. You've got uh, Prince Harry, as we see here in the text, um, and Prince Jacob, in, in this sense. And so at 60, the children are born. In verse 34, we read that Esau was 40. That makes Isaac 100 at the end of chapter 26. 
Now, we'll recognize that Isaac will die, according to 35.28, he'll die at 180. So there's an 80-year gap somewhere where this takes place. It's argued when this takes place. One thing we could be sure of, and that is that Jacob will leave at the end of this chapter on a 20-year journey to discover God in a deeper and more meaningful way. Now, that's important to recognize as we get into this text. So, older than 100, younger than 180. One other kind of thing we want to recognize, remember that Isaac himself has an older half-brother named Ishmael. Ishmael is 13 years older, and Ishmael dies. Now, that's kind of important. Ishmael will die, by the way, at the, again, at the age of 137 in chapter 25, verse 17. Now that leads me to believe that Isaac is older than, than this age would be. You minus 13 years, that puts us at 124. He's older than 124. And if you realize at that point... I look at this and I think somewhere down the line here, he recognizes his brother lived that long. He's getting kind of old. And we read in verse chapter 27, verse 1, It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Before I go any farther, I have to tell you there's something I pray every time I read this. And there's something that seems to happen, at least in Scripture, where people get, of course, naturally, they get so old that there's a point where your eyes just don't work like they used to. They're not as keen as you would like. The problem is is that I tend to look at anything in Scripture and realize that if it's physical, there's a pretty good possibility there's a spiritual ramification as well. And, And I recognize as I get older in the Lord how much easier it is to be blind to things. Because I'm kind of set in my ways. I feel like I've got all my doctrine down. I feel like I'll read a text. And do you do this if you're a bit familiar with text? You read the text and you're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I kind of know. Oh, it's that chapter. You kind of go through that a bit. And you really don't expect to find anything new. And you realize that there's something in me that prays, God, as I get older, please don't let me get blind. Don't let the eyes of my heart be blind now to the things you want to teach me today. And there's something that God correlates with age and blindness that happens a lot. We'll find with Eli and others as well. Here he gets so old he can't see anymore. And it says, and he called Esau his his older son to him and he said, my son. And he answered, here I am, which would be important since your dad can't see. And he said, behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out into the field and hunt game for me. And make for me savory food such as I love. And bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now we are confronted at this moment having the information of the first 26 chapters that this is an interesting quandary. Let me tell you why. Well, first of all, I recognize here that Dad is trying to put his house in order. Because he's trying to put his house in order here. He says, I'm getting old. I could die any second. I'm going to make sure I hand off this blessing. That much we're aware of. Of course, we are aware of the fact we have inside information, having read through the book of Genesis, that he's going to live at least 20 more years because his son's going to have to escape, live actually with Rachel's brother and family for 20 years, working for his two wives, and then get out of there and come back and still see Dad alive. So there's something interesting to think that Dad's like, I could die at... 
any minute, but he's going to stick around for at least two more decades. So that's kind of, and then there's a point to that. And that is just, I mean, there's, there are those that just, when you're younger, you think the opposite. You think you'll never die. You know, you'll walk in front of the bus, and the bus, of course, is going to go around you. And maybe occasionally a cab. But you know, as you get older, you can, there are people that live the opposite. It's like every minute's their last minute. Now, not in that best way. You know, when you're younger, you're like, take every minute and live it like it's your last. But not like, I could die any second. And you're just kind of waiting to die. And, then, and, and Isaac at least is trying to do something that God will tell, by the way, people. Like, as a guy, get your house in order. And I want to leave my child with a legacy. Now, there is an interesting point to this because this is the first time in Scripture a father is going to pronounce a blessing on a son like this. And there's a part of me that goes, and any of you do this, if you're familiar with the chapter, you kind of go, so wait a minute, there's like that birthright thing, and then there's that blessing. How exactly does that work, and what's the difference between the two? Well, one of the reasons we, if we can, if we just started reading Genesis and got this far with it, we might be confused is, to be honest, well, there really weren't two distinct things called this up to this point. It's almost like Isaac is bringing this new thing in. Now, the idea of a birthright is really important. Now, the idea of a birthright is your oldest son, for those of you who are new to this, your oldest son gets an extra share of your inheritance, but there's a reason for it. He is responsible for your burial. He's responsible to carry on the family name, the family honor, and the family occupation. So if I were a carpenter and I had a couple of boys with me, Femi and, and you know, and we'll just say that, Femi and Jeffrey, and Jeffrey would be the older. I'd look and I'd say, you know, that's two boys. I'm going to split my inheritance into three. That means that Jeffrey gets two parts. But of those two parts, he doesn't get that last part until I get a proper burial, which takes a year. Because he has to put me in a, in a flesh eater, a sarcophagus. That's a big, it's basically a big stone coffin. And then after a year, all that's left are my bones and dental records. And then he can take all of that and put it in a much smaller box, one about this size. It's called an ossuary. And he's able to put me in that so that we could bury our whole family in a much smaller plot of land. Now, going all the way back to this, he's still required to give me a good burial. And because of that, I'm going to give him a wherewithal to do so. He gets an extra share of the blessing as well because as a carpenter, you better do the carpentry and you better do it as good or better than I do. And the honor that we have in our family, you need to carry on that family honor. Which means that whatever blessings we have from God, whatever reputation that's good that we have in our community, I'm expecting you to hold that, to toe that line. As a result of that, I'm going to give you then responsibility and wherewithal. Do you see what I mean with that? The wherewithal, you're going to get that extra share of the inheritance. But the responsibility comes with it. I'm giving you an extra share because you get an extra share of responsibility. Now, the reason I say that is we know before this point that there seems to be one of the two people of these two sons that really seems to be very interested in that birthright, and that happens to be Jacob. Now, there are two aspects to that, I remind you. There's the aspect of responsibility and the aspect of a little bit more treasure, so to speak. But what we read, and according to the book of Hebrews, it says, and don't be a profane person like Esau, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. So Esau, on the other hand, who, by the way, his name means Harry. The child comes out looking like Bigfoot. And <laughs> the parents name him Prince Harry. There he is, you know, and he's just covered in hair. And we're going to see in this chapter, he is so hairy that you actually cover yourself in fur and that fool's dad. That tells you how hairy he is. It isn't like you just kind of do that spray-on hair stuff or put some Rogaine on your hair and your arms for a couple days. We're talking about fur. 
This boy is a walking fur coat. And we, we read as he's a hunter. And being a hunter, dad loves him because dad loves the game he brings home. In other words, one thing I can tell you about Esau, my boy, he brings home a good barbecue. Now, with that, he happens to be dad's favorite, but then Jacob tends to be mom's. Now, the reason I say this about separating the blessing from the birthright is, is that the birthright comes with the blessing. To have the birthright, you already have the blessing. Now, here's the interesting thing, and here's the thing that becomes a problem as we read the text. is People have a natural tendency to pre-assume so much, and all it takes is one person to teach you before this point, that in, in the moment anyone teaches you, if this is the first time you've gone through this text, you'll have my prejudice. So I want to warn you, my prejudice is to try to be as pure to the text as possible. Let me tell you what we don't have in Scripture. What we do, first of all, have in Scripture is that this gal has a difficult pregnancy. Now, we pray quite often for the gals in our fellowship. We have at least two gals or three gals, three gals that are pregnant in our fellowship. And that's kind of key. And, and, we, and it's like one of the first, how are you doing? How's the pregnancy? And I'm just waiting for the first one to say, well, there's a little bit of trouble in my, you know, and you're like, well, maybe there's, never mind. So, but there, and, and so what, what happens is for 20 years, the husband finally pleads. After 20 years, he pleads with the Lord. My wife can't get pregnant. She finally does. And she has a difficult pregnancy. And she's the one who seeks the Lord. We don't read they do. We read that she does. And as she seeks the Lord, the Lord genuinely speaks specifically to her. Now try explaining in the Middle East that there is a woman that God personally speaks with. See how that flies. But scripturally, it's all throughout the Bible. Now, in that, follow me on it, she speaks to the Lord and says, what's the problem? This isn't normal, is it? It's my first pregnancy, but this seems a little rough. And God says, two nations are in your womb. And of those two nations, there will be a battle for supremacy, but the older will serve the younger. That she gets personally. Now let me tell you what we are not told, is that she tells anyone. We do not read that she tells her husband. We do not read that she tells her children. She might have, but we don't have it in Scripture. So if we build a whole story around something that we presuppose, we've completely colored the story. God obviously tells us that cannot be the key. Had she told her husband that the older would serve the younger, then the husband would be in disobedience to do this. Does that make sense? Because what that would mean is that the husband would say, well, fine, I'll usurp what my wife just told me by giving my son that command. Now, that's for sure. That could be the case. But we don't have it in Scripture. We could have that the children are taught that. And if the children were taught that, that they would then kind of maneuver and try to do whatever is necessary. But we don't have that either. In Scripture, we don't have that anyone knows that information but Rebecca. They could, I remind you, but we don't have that. Does that make sense, everyone? Are you following me on that? But what we do have is two children who have already made a deal. And the deal was that this older one, Esau, has forfeited his birthright because he comes in from hunting, and apparently not a good day for hunting because he's starving, which means he hasn't caught anything. Or if he has, he isn't killing it and eating it. So he comes in, and there's Jacob with a pot of red stew, and he looks in and he goes, Give me some of that stew! And then, by the way, we kind of make it look like, you know, Esau is this, you know, he's like this big monster of a man. He's kind of somewhere smaller than King Kong. And then Jacob's kind of a mamby-pamby guy. But he holds his own with his brother. Have you noticed that? I mean, imagine if you have a big, hairy guy like that. He goes, get his eyes still. He's like, okay, okay, yeah. But we don't have that. 
He's like, well, sell me your birthright then. And he says, what good is my birthright anyways? I'm about to die. And I kind of get the idea that he sounds a little bit like dad. Because remember, dad says, I'm about to die, and he's going to get 20 years more out of this. And now we have Esau, I'm about to die. Jacob's like, well, this is a good opportunity. Give me your birthright. And he says, whatever, sure. Now, the reason I say that is, when Isaac calls Esau into his room and says, it's time for me to bless you, that blessing is supposed to be now the handing over of the responsibility of the estate, which comes with the birthright. Does that make sense? I've already, but the problem is the birthright has already been handed over to Jacob. Now, we don't know if the dad knows it, but we are sure that Esau does. And you could see Esau, and I don't know if you ever thought about it, Esau's conniving here, because Esau is playing into it the moment and going, ooh, I may have given over that birthright, but I get the blessing. Ooh, this is going to work out well. Now remember, part of the birthright was the responsibility. The blessing part of it at that point is the bequeathing of all of the goods. So imagine what Esau's getting out of the deal if he pulls this off. What Esau's going to get out of it if he, because he doesn't stand up and say something to his dad is I get all the money and no responsibility. Wow, that works out real well. Now dad says, go kill me something, kill it and grill it and fill it and I'll bless you. He's like, all right, Dad, I'm on it. And off he goes. Are you following me so far on this? Again, I'm trying to approach it with as little prejudice as possible, just what the Scripture says. Now, he says, I don't know about the day of my death, but I do know this. Now, what's interesting about this boy Esau, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> what we know up to this point is he's married twice, and both women are a grief of mine, what we read again. So he's not in a particular position where Dad's proud of that. He will ultimately settle in the land of Seir in chapter 32. He will help bury dad in 35. He will be called Edom, which means red in 36. But by numbers, the descendants of Edom will not let Israel pass through their territory. In 1 Samuel 14, they'll be one of Saul's enemies. In 2 Kings 8, they'll be one of David's enemies as he builds fortresses in their areas, garrisons. In 1 Kings 11, He'll be one of Solomon. He'll be Solomon's first adversary as Hadad the Edomite. And I find it's interesting that they will always seem to be, to some degree, up to that point, enemies of Israel. Now, verse 5. Now we see how mom plays into it. So mom happens to be, and this seems to run in the family too, that they happen to overhear conversations, if you remember from Sarah. Um, However, it's important to note she never met Sarah because she died... If you remember, Sarah died three years before Rebecca came to the camp. In verse 5, it says that Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went into the field to hunt game to bring it in. But verse 6, so Rebecca told, spoke to her son Jacob and said, Indeed, I've heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring the game, bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats. And I think, how hungry is dad? You got to pull up two goats, kill them to eat it, and make savory, I'll make savory food from them for your father as he loves. I mean, dear goats what's really the difference your dad's not going to know we're going to grill it up we'll spice it the way he likes it 
doesn't matter, it's meat, dad will love it. And then say to your father, I'm taking to your father, that he may eat it, and then he may bless you before his death. Now have you noticed that both issues, that's the blessing and the birthright, revolved around food? I think that's a little bit interesting. And I can't help but think of a couple scriptures, one from Romans and one from Philippians. And the reason is, is that God speaks about a group of people that really are not governed by Him. And you know what He says about them? He says in chapter 16, verse 18, These are such who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own belly. In Philippians 3.19, we read, Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Now, you may not be one of those people who thinks that basically you're driven by food. Maybe you are. If you are, welcome to Calorie Chapel. That's probably why you're here. But let's boil it down to its rawest element. Appetite. Are you driven by your appetites? Because what you'll find is there are a lot of people in the world that their appetites govern everything. Their appetite for friends, their appetite to be important, their appetite for sex, their appetite for, for whatever it is, something exciting. And in all of those things, what you find is their whole world is governed by it. It's so much so that 99% of advertising is based on basically taunting your appetites. Think about it. If I can find out what it is you really, really want, and then I can make it look the best that could possibly be and put it on a... 15 by 24 or something and stick it up on a wall or even better yet, light it up with lights, you will go to my, sh- my shop and buy whatever the thing is I'm selling, even if it has no correlation. If you buy my washing machine, girls in bikinis are going to jump out of it the first time you use it. It's amazing how many people might buy it. And what's amazing is you go, well, that's ridiculous, but that's the way the commercial looks when you look on TV. Now, what person thought, sure, women jumping out of a washing machine, That'll do it, but they do it. And what does that tell you? And the reason I say that is, is that I find it interesting. I think you are going to be governed by something transcending, or might I just dare say, the Lord Himself and His Spirit, or your appetites are going to be at the, the steering wheel. It's going to really be one or the other. So where are you at, honestly? Are you at a place where you're ruled by bitterness because you feel like you're entitled to be angry at someone? In the end of it all, that's an appetite. Are you at a place where you feel like you constantly have to get more, have to become more important, have to fight and whatever, because somehow that's your appetite? Have you spent more time this morning on your hair than in the Word, because that's your appetite? The Lord's really helping me out with that. He's giving me less and less to play with. So. Now, interesting, I want to remind you in all of this, Jacob is at least 40 years old. How do I know that? Because Esau was 40 when he got married, and I remind you, they're twins. A general rule, by the way, if one person turns an age, it's a pretty good possibility the twin is also that age. You kind of got that? I have a twin sister. Obviously, we're not identical. She's a girl. And I've had people ask throughout time, how old are you? Oh, well, how old are you? And just for the fun of it, I like to change to a different age. You know, I'm, you know, five years younger than she is. Really? That must have been a difficult pregnancy. Now, what mom says is really simple, and follow me on this. What mom says is, Dad's determined to bless his favored son. Now, I remind you, 
Mom knows this promise. God personally spoke this promise. She is the one person I am sure has the promise. But what do you do when you have a promise of God upon you and all the circumstances look really bleak on how it's going to come to pass? Do you make the move at that moment? I need to help God out. I Obviously, the reason this hasn't come to pass at this point is because I haven't stepped into it like I'm supposed to. Now, remember, this gal was not around to hear Sarah's stories of how she brought Hagar in, thinking that that would help the situation. That didn't make it any better, now did it? And now it's her turn. Now, ladies, I I don't want to pick on you, but did you notice in both of those cases it was women? Now, not that men don't do that too, but can dare I just say that there are a lot of times, this is what I've learned about the, and you can criticize me all you want for out. It is my opinion. This isn't the gospel truth. It's just my opinion, so you can disagree and be a Christian. But <clears throat> I have this tendency to see that normally the, the stereotype, as I understand people, is if a problem occurs, the gal says, husband and wife are looking at the problem, whatever it be. The wife looks and goes, if I don't do something about that, it's just going to get worse. And the man says, I'll leave it alone. It'll get better. And that's kind of what I've noticed a lot of times in society. And what I see, and the reason I say that is, is that there are problems like this where you're confronted and you're looking at the problem and you're going, what do I do? 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 What do, I do? And it speeds up. Now, they're not, it's not only going to be exclusive to women. We'll see Saul does the same thing and he gets really worked for it later. Saul the king. But in this situation, she's looking. And now think about the, think about the, tr- the, cr- the trial, the crisis this would be. She happens to be listening through the wall. Hmm. Wait a minute. Somehow she's overhearing the conversation. Now, the Middle Easterners aren't normally quiet, so you can get that as well. But in that, somewhere overhears the conversation. And as she overhears the conversation, she's like, wait a minute. Jacob has this promise upon him from God. How can Jacob, how can I reconcile Jacob's promise that God placed on his life with this situation? Now listen, in the end of it all, Jacob's going to walk out getting that promise. You can say that. The ends never justify the means. And, but the problem is he never got to tell his grandchildren how God did it. And that becomes the problem when you try to help God out. Is you see a problem, and to be honest, if it's God's bill, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. That's our general attitude. And, you know, if God guides, He provides. Now, God puts you in a place to do something and He promises He's going to do it, and then things look completely opposite of that, that should get you excited because you are obviously in the queue for a miracle. Think about it. Do you really want to rob yourself of the miracle God's going to do just because you think, oh, I better step into it at this moment? And there you are walking on water and you don't even realize it. And then you're thinking, oh man, if I had a little more time, I would have built a boat while I was walking on water. Why? So you could stop walking on water and float on something else? Friends, hear me out. Rebecca does, to be honest, what any one of us would have done in this circumstance unless we were spirit-filled. Which is, we act, we knee-jerk respond on it. When she says this, no, hear me out. You have to go in the name of your brother. That's what you have to do. You have to go in the name of your brother to get this blessing. Now, Jacob doesn't seem to be the dimmest bulb. He seems to be getting it a little bit. And Jacob says in verse 11 to his mom, and I remind you, he's over 40. His mom, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. And I'm a smooth-skinned man. 
Perhaps my father will feel me and I will seem to be a deceiver. Now, dad, I, I, mom, you know, look at, I don't want, we're going to go deceive dad, but if dad nails me on this, I don't want him to think that I'm a deceiver. I don't want him to, I don't want it to appear like I'm a deceiver. Now, notice already the thing he doesn't say, which is, mom, that can't be right. Lying about the situation, that doesn't seem like the right choice, mom. Now, we don't have any of that argument over the ethic over it. We don't have any argument here about whether it's right or wrong. And and this is something that becomes so natural as well. Let me ask you, what's the problem? Is the bad thing doing the wrong thing or getting caught? Because in the society we live, what you'll find is a lot of times, it isn't an issue of what's right and wrong. The wrong is getting caught. And so we'll send them to prison so they could learn how to do it again, but not get caught this time. It's another training camp. Is that what we really want? But here's the thing, and I'm not talking about the unsaved world. We should expect the unsaved world to act like that, yeah? The question is, what about us? Do we still do that? I mean, in the end of it all, when we were approached with this situation, did we go, this is just flat out wrong, or, well, what's the risk of me getting caught in it? Because in the end of it all, if we're in that place, well, we're no better off than he is. And what he says is, look it, the first thing that's obvious is, is that I'm a smooth-skinned guy, Dad's hairy. I'm sorry, Derry. My brother's hairy. And if my brother is hairy, Dad's going to feel me and boom, I'm going to be busted in a heartbeat. And, I, and then it'll appear as if I was trying to deceive him. And it says, notice verse 12, fundamental. And I'll bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. The word curse in its base sense, there are terms like cursed in the past tense of cursing, but the term curse in its base sense is used four times in the book of Genesis. Of those four times, half of them are here. And there it is. He says, look it. If I do this in deception, I risk getting the curse. Verse 13, the last time we'll find it in in the book of Genesis, the mother says, let your curse be on me. Did you get that? So let me see if I have this right. If I really want the blessing of the Father, I'm going to have to stand in the Son's name. But here's the problem. If I stand in the Son's name deceitfully, I have a curse upon me. But the last time I read the curse is, let the curse, your curse, fall on me instead. And I go, ooh, that gets me thinking. Standing in my brother's name well, but I can't stand in my brother's name. I'm an entirely, I have a different flesh than he has. My flesh is completely different than his is. My aroma is completely different than his is. And I can't stand in my brother's name that way. Well, if I do, there's a curse. Fast forward to the book of Galatians. Where in the book of Galatians, it tells us that God took the curse that I rightfully already had by the flesh I bore. And God said, let your curse be upon me. And it says, and I'll read it literally then. It says this in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And do you see what happened? God is setting us up for this. That ultimately, it's God Himself who took our curse and He said, let your curse be upon me. Because I want you to stand in the name of your brother. Your brother who's your Savior. The one who came to walk with blood like you. Flesh that could be tempted, but never experienced the sin. 
And so he looks and says, but here's the problem. I need to cover you. I'm going to need to cover you. And that's what we read. And clothe you. And what we read is we've been covered in the blood of Christ and we've been clothed with Christ. And I can stand before the Father and receive all the blessing of the Father because I have been covered in the blood of Christ and I have been clothed in Him. Have you? Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ that allows us to stand in the innocence of your Lord and Savior and receive the blessing of the Father? Or are you still trying to do it with your own hands? Well, according to this, he says, well, then let, your, let that curse be upon me, your son, my son, but obey my voice. So, verse 14, that gets mom thinking about how she has to pull this off. He went in and he got them and brought them to his mother. What did he get? Two goats. Wait a minute. Two goats. Two kid goats. And I start to think, wait a minute. Two kid goats. That's basically Jacob and Esau if I look at it. Have you ever seen kid goats before? They're the funniest things to watch. First of all, they, they do this weird jump thing. Like, doing, doing, doing. I mean, it looks like they're kind of on spring shoes. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. It's, basically, they jump like a flea. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. But when you see two kid goats, they're always bucking at each other. I mean, you know, we used to go to these petting zoos. And, and uh, we just give the kids, it was one of our, their favorite things, we'd give them some food, and they kind of hold it sheepishly, no pun intended, through the fence. And these two, you know, these, these goats would just go at it. Now, when you get older, they just use their shoulders. They just kind of, you know, in other words, they still have the same attitude. They're just too old to do the boing-boing thing anymore. So they, they learn how to do it more subtly. Just like us, we know how to do We don't stop being the person we were when we were younger. We just learn how to do it a little bit more subtly. Now, and the, but the, you know, those young ones, man, they just, they just ram heads at each other until one of them falls over and then the other one literally steps on them on the way to get the food. And I kind of realize that we're kind of watching with these boys a little bit here. But then I can't help but think, wait a minute, two goats, two goats. Leviticus 16, that's two goats. What's interesting is in this story, there are two goats, and one goat is basically going to receive the blessing. And interesting, that blessing is going to receive, is going to send him out into the wilderness to escape while the other one wants him dead. In Leviticus 16, there is a day that, is, that God has ordained once a year, the day of Yom Kippur. And Kifir, Kifur means covering. Interesting, the same thing we're going to need to see here with this Jacob boy. And what happens on that day as it's the day that's to prepare us for the most important day in history when God's own Son, the Lamb of God, would die on a cross as our sacrifice. But up to that point, every year, and it was supposed to be an after that the point is added, every year the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would first of all make a sacrifice for himself. Because see, he was sinful. And so we had to make a sacrifice to make sure he was qualified to make the sacrifice for all of the people. And then what would happen, <coughs> excuse me, is that they would take these two goats. And as they would take these two goats, they would cast lots. And as they cast lots, one of those goats would actually be brought over and he would lay his hands on that animal and he would confess the sins of the people. We've been proud. We've been isolative. We've been covetous. 
we've been bitter, we've been whatever. And then they would take that animal and they would slaughter that animal. And as they would slaughter that animal, the people, this was the one night, by the way, the high priest pulled an all-nighter. He didn't sleep all night because this sacrifice had to be done to the letter. So you are cramming for this event. Now, understand, it isn't like you fail, you die as the high priest. This is kind of big stakes for him. So he is now, the sacrifice for himself had to be enough, and you don't even know whether it is or not yet. And then the sacrifice for the people had to be enough. Now, how was it enough? It had to be perfect. That was the only thing that was required of it. And then he would take that, and he would offer then the blood in the altar, in the Holy of Holies, in the Kadosh Kadushim, and he would offer it there. And if it was acceptable, he would come out alive again. Wow, that's big odds. And so here we are, and if he comes out alive, we're saying, all right, good, our sins have been covered for a year. We can, let, we can go back to sinning again. But I mean, in the end of it all, we, I mean, we all kind of stand there and wait. We want to see him come out, because if he comes out alive, it's proof to us that God accepted the sacrifice. But think of all the variables. He had to be right. The animal had to be right. The sacrifice itself had to be right. The process had to be right So for him to come out alive. Now, in our text here, that other goat, all he actually gets off sort of, sort of off. And what happens is he gets called the chatzadzel. Chatzadzel means the escape goat. Now, we use the term scapegoat, but it really is a short enough escape goat is the idea. Because this goat actually gets to go free. And as he goes free, he heads out into the wilderness. Let him free into the wilderness is the idea. Now, this guy, this goat, is going to escape. Just like the Chatzazel. Interesting as it is. And it points me to something we will not see yet for over 400 years. However, there will be a day that will be, <coughs> excuse me, 1400 years after that, that the Son of God would hang on a cross his blood would be shed, doesn't have to give a sacrifice for himself because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So he didn't have to offer any sin, any sacrifice for himself. He was perfect. But Hebrews tells us he was our high priest. And then, what did he do? He took that sacrifice to the grave. How do I know that that sacrifice was accepted? He came out alive again. It was proof that it was an acceptable sacrifice forever that's the point of it you get it you're like leviticus what do we get out of leviticus you get that to start with now back in our text here's our here's the boy and he's thinking and now think about it if you were jacob at this moment would you be a little nervous i'd be a little nervous now dad's you know dad's getting older and he's blind but do i really think i could pull this off so, verse 14, he went and got them, brought them to his mom, and his mother made savory food just as his father loved. Then Rebekah took choice clothes of her elder son Esau, which were in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And then he put, he put skins of the kids, on the, of the goats, on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. You have to wonder how weird this kid looks at this moment. He's got freshly killed goat hanging on his fingers all the way up and it has to go all the way up to his shoulder. He's got his brother's stinky outfit on. Later on, the dad says, that smells like a blessed field. What does a blessed field smell like? That's a field full of animals. What does anything full of animals smell like? He's like, <coughs> that's, that's my son. 
I imagine he's like, you know, there you are. You're like, you're smelling like Christian Dior or something like that. And he's like, we can't have that. We have a new cologne for you, Midnight in the Manure. Put this on, boy. So he's got, he's got his brother. Now, think about it. Now, he, his brother's over 40. Is he losing any of that hair? Is it on the coat? And the boy's got to put this thing on. He's got the lambs, he's got the goat skins up his arms. And it says around his, the smooth part of his neck. Now, it all depends on how short his hair is cut. But that probably means he, got, he has one of those things that looks, you know like when you're in an accident and they put one of those rings around your neck? He's got one of those hairy, I mean, because pretty good possibility that, that one thing we'd be sure it's probably the front part. Probably, you know, the boy not only had a goatee, he had like a throatee, you know, his whole neck covered in hair. You know, he's got the kind of, kind of blossoms out of the front of his shirt, you know. And so it's like, so here he is. Imagine he's got to walk into his dad with this food. He's got the ring of hair around here, right? And he's got the ring of hair coming all the way up like this. And he's going to come in walking in with his brother's big thing wagging like this, right? And that's what's, I mean, I think about now, which one of you wants to be Jacob at this moment? And you have to look ridiculous, just like anyone who was a poser trying to walk as a Christian when they're not. Man, you look dumb. Because you're trying to, you know, you're like, you know, hallelujah, what? You know? And you're like, yeah, uh-huh, we were, we were at the pub, the church, we were at the church until 1 a.m. And, you know, I mean, the funny things that we do, and we all trying to clothe ourselves, trying to look like, oh, look at me. And people look go, man, you're the goofiest thing. Is it, is it Halloween again? Because what, what, what are you supposed to be? You're like, I'm supposed to be my brother, Harry. You're like, you sure your brother's name ain't like fool or goofy or something? Because you look goofy. So he went and brought him his mother. Rebecca took the choice clothes. And now I get the idea of this, is we've got to be clothed. Our flesh has to be dealt with if we're actually going to be like our brother. Hmm. Gave him the savory food, which he prepared into the hand of her son Jacob, because after all, that's going to be part of it, right? Now, so he went into his father. Daddy! <coughs> father! My father, he said, here I am. Who are you, son? Oh, man. He doesn't even get an inch out of this thing, have you noticed? He's got a lie from the beginning of it. I am Esau, your son, your firstborn. Son, just like you told me, please arise and need my game that your soul may bless me. <laughs> yeah. Isaac said, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? Now, have you noticed, man, God is not allowing him to get away with this easy. Now, Dad, apparently on this, okay, his eyes are gone, but his brain doesn't seem to be that bad still, have you noticed? And he's like, something's not right about this. You know what's the problem when you're trying to lie? Especially if you're trying to lie to be like your brother? You'll bring the Lord into it. And he says, oh, um, because the Lord, your God, brought it to me. Now, I want to remind you, this is Isaac he's talking to. Remember Isaac who almost got sacrificed on a mountain until they saw a ram caught in the thickets? So I think Isaac knows what it's like to see God put an animal where he needs to put it. But Jacob, on the other hand, he's lying right through his teeth. He's like, I don't know, Dad, I was going to go, I was going to go hunt for you when I opened up the door and bam, there was a deer on the other side of the door. I knocked it out when I opened the door. There it was laying there dead. And I went, oh, this is going to be easy. And I just killed it right there at the doorstep. Dad, here you go. I mean, I mean, think about it. 
And you know, you know the problem is, I mean, you know, the, the, the quickest forest to grow in the world is a live forest because the seed plants and you have to add to it right away. And it's no shortage of manure. So <coughs> in our text, Dad's like, how did it come so quick? Oh, well, I walked out the door and boom, there it was. Verse 21, Dad's not convinced. Isaac says to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son whether you're really my son Esau or not. Now, which one of you, your heart at this point, is not beating your throat? So Jacob went near to his father, and he felt him. And he said, well, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are Esau's. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm feeling goat fur? And I'm like, yeah, that's Esau. How hairy is this guy? He's over 40. And here's the most amazing. Maybe that's why he had to marry the Hittites, because they were the only ones who would marry a guy that hairy. I don't know. But what does his his eHarmony page look like? Wanted hairdresser as a girlfriend. Somebody who likes to... Anyways, you get the idea. An electrolysis worker. Um, But, I mean, Dad feels fur. Fur. And goes, yeah, that's my... I know your voice still sounds like Jacob. In other words, his ears seem to be working well. His eyes are gone. His sense of taste, well, that's going to be gone too because he's going to feed him... Remember, kids instead of, of deer, and you ain't going to tell the difference. His sense of feeling seems to be shot because somehow in it he could be <coughs> excuse me, fooled by that. At the end of it all, his sense of smell will be lost too. No, in this he goes, so wait a minute. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm still not really sure, but well, bring me the food anyways. And you're hairy. I'll say that much. Clearly Esau isn't hairy. Like, I mean, clearly Jacob isn't hairy like that. So just bring it near to me that I may eat my son's game. And then my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. So what do we have here? Interesting. We have bread and wine and a sacrifice. So, as he came near and kissed him, he smelled the smell of his clothing. And he went, Woo! Surely this smell is the smell of my son, like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. There you go. You stink. You hairy. But you brought me food. Good enough for me. Therefore, may God give you the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren. Let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, if you think about it, his blessing is threefold. First of all, he blesses him with sustenance. May you have all of the, of the materials you need to do what you need to do. Pardon me. Thank you. Bless you too. And I mean that word for word. All right. First of all, sustenance, if you see that there. Second, superiority. Notice here Dad says, sons. Are there other kids that God isn't highlighting here? We really don't have. All we know are two. But the animal, he goes, look it. I'm ordaining you the authority that is necessary. But that's what a father does. A father ordains authority. Remember, he hands over that authority because the birthrighted boy, the oldest boy, has the responsibility of carrying on the family name, the family honor, the family occupation. So you need the authority to do that. Now, I don't have any reason to believe necessarily that dad's doing this completely in some form of rebellion. Might have. But one thing I do know is this is what dads do at least at this point. But then this is in essence the bequeathing of the birthright. Esau, on the other hand, is just trying to receive the goods. So, and then the third thing in all of this is look at, you know what? I want to make you in a position where 
man, you're going to be basically invincible. Curse those that curse you. Bless those that bless you. You're going to be special to the people around you. Now, at that moment, I would imagine if I were Jacob, I'd be trying to get out of there as quickly as possible before anything changes. Now, this is an unrepealable command. Now, by the way, it's important to recognize that when a law is made, it is a sign of a tremendously weak kingdom that you have to change the law. By the way, that says a little bit about our, both of our governments in that sense. Although, might I just say, each day that we're here, we, I mean, our, our heart here, in case you don't know, is to live and die here. We have no intent of being here temporarily. This is where we want to be. And, but with that, recognize that in both places, in America and here, the laws are always changing. It just seems like you can actually say red is blue and the next day is blue is orange. And I mean, just the things are constantly changing. And the sign of any kingdom, of a solid, sure kingdom and a wise king, is that you don't have to change your laws. By the way, we'll see that, for instance, with Ahasuerus, those who are familiar with the book of Esther. The king is not going to change his law. And the reason he's not going to change his laws, it's a sign of a weak kingdom. But let me tell you about the best king. The best king said a law that said the wages of sin is death. That was clear. And he's not going to change that. But God also set this in motion that the curse could be placed on another. And God, in his infinite love, before you were ever made, had already, went, had already made a way by sending his son, agreeing, and then on that perfect chosen day, that son of God died on a cross for you. So that no law would ever have to be changed, but then rather it would be met. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy this. I came to fulfill it. To fulfill it means there was one thing lacking from it, and that was the payment on which he became. Now, in our text, it says in verse 30, here's where it gets fun, as, it, as if the rest wasn't fun. As it happened, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. So actually, it was a pretty successful day for him too. If you think about it, he could have been out all day. He could have been out for days. He could have been out for years. But instead, he seems to come in. Hey, you know, hey, Jacob. Hey, so how's it going? Fine. Hey, is that my clothes? So he also came in, made savory food, brought it to his father, said to his father, let my father arise and eat his son's game that my soul may, I'm sorry, that your soul may bless me. Now, this is key with this guy because what you're going to find is every time this kid talks, he's got the words bless me written into it. And that tells me a lot. He doesn't say, give me some authority. He doesn't say, show me the responsibility that's mine. He just says, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. So he says, dad, rise on up and bless me. Now, dad at that point is kind of catching wind of what's going on here. And the father, Isaac, says then, well, who are you? Now, what son likes to get that? I mean, even if you call a friend and you call him on the phone and the reception's bad, and they're like, who is this again? You get that weird feeling like, you should know this by now. You know, when it's your dad. You walk in the room like, God's food, Dad. And you're like, who is that? And you're like, oh, great. He's lost his sight. Now he has Alzheimer's, too. So, it's Esau, Dad. Come on. You told me. You didn't. You just sent me to get food so you could bless me. Hello? And then Dad starts trembling uncontrollably. And I start to look at that and I think, wow, how weird would that be for Esau? I mean, think about how weird that is. Dad says, go get me some food, come back, and I'm going to bless you. He's like, all right. So he goes back, he kills something, he cooks it up or whatever, and he comes in like, all right, Dad, got the food, has no idea what's gone in between that time. And Dad's like, who are you? And he's like, have I missed anything? He said, I mean, you get food. I got, I got the food. Come last me. And all of a sudden, Dad starts going, oh, how weird would that be for Esau? He's like, uh, um, Dad, you all right? 
And it says, he trembled exceedingly and he said, Who? Where's the one who hunted game and brought it to me already? I ate before you came. Sorry, I'm full, son. Someone else had already done this. I blessed him instead of you. Oh, huh. Now you can imagine, at that point, Esau's probably not really happy about that. When Esau heard these words, he cried with an exceeding great and bitter cry, and he said, Bless me! Bless me, Dad! Come on, bless me! Verse 35, he said, Your brother came in with the seed and has taken away your blessing. He said, oh, isn't he rightly called Jacob? He supplanted me these two times, which isn't true. Remember the last time he sold it. You know, you know well, he tricked me in what? Tricked me what? Into believing I was going to die? I used that information. He took away my birthright and now he's taking away my blessing. Don't you have any blessing for me, Dad? Bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Isaiah answered and said, Indeed, I've made him your master. And all the brethren I've given his servants with grain and wine. Grain and wine. And I sustained him. What else can I do? In other words, he says, look it. To be honest, I thought he was useful. I gave him everything. Ooh, everything. Which means that dad, this part does put dad at fault. Because it appears to me at this, that dad did not save that share that he was supposed to give to his youngest son. Gave it all. He had no idea that he was giving it all to the one that he had planned to give nothing to. What shall I do for you, my son? And so verse 38, he says, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me! So let me see. To recap the words of Esau, Bless me! Bless me! Is he taking away my blessing? Don't you have a blessing for me? Bless me! Have you one blessing, my father? Bless me! Did you kind of get the idea where Esau was going with this? And I get the idea here that Esau is the father of the Bless Me Bible Fellowship. Oh, there's a lot of those out there. You didn't even realize it was in Scripture, did you? But it's right here. You know, here's the problem. Is that the fellowship you belong to? Because this is the way it works. I'm not going to go find a good church. I'm going to go shopping for a good church. You know what church I want? I want the church that blesses me. I want the church that, you know what? First of all, I want to make sure that my heart is lifted up in worship. So give me a good rocking band. I need something I can make sure my hands get up without me noticing. Give me something. Mm, get my praise on. Right? Oh, bless me. And then after that, give me something. No, don't make that message too long because that doesn't bless me. But make it long enough so that I could think for a little bit and then I could feel like I could be a Christian and smart at the same time. Ooh, I'm smart. I'm smart. You know what? Well, you don't believe in God, you're dumb. Oh, you're a Christian, but you don't believe like I do, you're dumb too. But man, I'm smart. So who bless me? And then when we're done, make sure, don't you pass no hat. Don't you be passing the hat, because that doesn't bless me. Now, that's about blessing someone else. I don't care if kids are starving. This is about the bless me church. And I sing songs, it's all about me. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, come on. And I can do it. And I, and I want the messages to be all about how God's going to bless my finances. And how God's going to bless my family. And I'm never going to be sick. And I'm never going to have problems. And I'm never going to face traffic. And if I drive through a congestion zone, all the cameras are going to be off. Come on, I know all that. I'm never going to have to pay taxes. Send me to a church. Send me to the Bless Me Bible Fellowship. And in the end of it all, well, what happens when the pastor is doing the same thing? God wants to bless you. And I'll tell you how He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you by you mailing all your money to me. Now, I'm not too sure how that blesses anyone. Now, you've, you've ever seen that. And then the guy says, look it, but if you send it in faith, God's going to give you a hundredfold. And then they say, our TV show's about to go off the air. And I'm like, well, well how much do you owe? A hundred thousand? 
well, why don't you mail a thousand in faith? God will give you a hundred thousand. You can pay your bill. Isn't that what you taught? Funny how that works. But that's the church of Esau, which God calls a profane person. You want to be a profane person? He sold his birthright because who wants responsibility? Don't make me responsible with all that scripture. Give me something fluffy. Give me something kind of like a plush toy, kind of like an Esau. You know what? I've got to be honest. Is there any one of us in here that doesn't deal with that to some degree? That would much rather have all the blessings but no responsibility? Welcome to the Peter Pan Church. Might I just dare say, it's time to grow up. Where it's not, you know, this is not a spectator sport. One guy doesn't just sit around here and rave a bunch of time and you go, oh, that was entertaining, I guess. Long, but entertaining. And then when you're done, as long as I don't have to do anything, I'm all right. God is calling you all out to the field, beloved. Whether that's your workplace, your friend base, whatever it is, in the end of it all, He's calling you to the field. That's what happened. And I don't want to be like Esau. So, what's the blessing for someone like Esau when all the good blessing went to the other son? Verse 39. Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, your dwelling shall be in the fatness of the earth. The dew of the heaven, that means he's actually not going to be able to stay anywhere for long because he's going to have to live off the land. So the words that you're going to be a vagabond. Your life's going to be one that you're wandering. And by the way, when you live in a bless me world, you're going to wander. You'll spend a lot of time wandering. You don't grow roots in a bless me world. Second, by the sword you'll have to live, which means not only are you going to be a vagabond, you're going to be violent. You're going to have to live by taking from other people. Living by the sword means you're robbing people. That's what it means. But a blessed me person is a little less concerned about what he gets from other, how he gets it from other people. It's more important than that, how, that he gets it. And then finally in all of that, he says, but in the end of it all, when you become restless, and this is the part that really blesses me in a better way than the bless me, bless me thing. When you become restless, you'll break his yoke from your neck. There's a variance. Here's the cool thing. Okay, so maybe you're in that place right now. Maybe you came in here with that bless me, bless me. You know, I really don't want to do anything. So I'm still, you know, if I could just kind of keep on the fringe and get what I need and get out before anyone gets to know my name. But in the end of it, are you tired of wandering around? Are you restless? Because, you know, you can only be that way for so long without getting restless. And I'm like, you know what? This isn't enough, man. Just getting stuff. And then you're like, you know what? I'm, I need to go to some place where I can get more. And you're going to be more restless. Because not, you're not going to find satisfaction in the bless me club. That's the weird part about it. You're going to find it in the place that says, Lord, make me a blessing. Isn't that what he said to Abraham when this whole thing started? He doesn't just say, I'm going to bless you. He says, first of all, God says, I'm the one who's going to bless you. But then he says, I'm going to make you a blessing. You pray that? I mean, what if we prayed that? Lord, don't just bless me. Make me a blessing. Okay, let's close this up. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And the words of Esau, her older son, and the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Oh, what were those words? Verse 41. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. Oh, by the way, I want to warn you. The Bless Me Church, Bless Me Bible Fellowship, they're not going to be hip on you finding Christ and being on fire for Him, falling in love with the Savior. 
they're not going to be excited about that at all. Because what they're going to find is you're going to be the evidence and testimony of satisfaction to a place with a bunch of people that try to find it somewhere else. And of course, that's the case here. So Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning of my father at hand, then I'll kill my brother Jacob. That'll make me feel better. Now, here's the interesting thing. You wonder why it is God let, let dad live another 20 years? Maybe because he didn't want Esau to kill his brother. Can you imagine he's waiting around the house? Remember, Jacob's going to take off and he's like, man, once my dad dies, I'm going to kill him. Next day he wakes up. Once my dad dies, I'm going to kill him. A week later, once dad dies, I'm going to kill him. A year later, someday when dad dies, I'm going to probably kill him. Ten years go by. There's something about Jacob. Twenty years go by. I mean, think about it. God does not allow dad to die. Maybe that was one of the reasons. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. She sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, and I love, this is just shows you how great mom is in it. Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. You know what makes your brother feel good at night? You know, I mean, he doesn't put on any of that soothing music or anything. He just says, I'm going to kill my brother. And then he goes to sleep. That makes him feel better. Is he thankful you don't have a brother like that? Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, because it worked out so well last time, son. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. few days. Mom has no idea. You know what else mom has no idea of because of this? She'll never see her son again. She sends her son away. A few days he'll be gone. And mom's conniving. And she'll say, I'd rather die than see him marry a Hittite. Why don't you send him out of here? And it's like she's going to die before she sees him again. Until your brother's anger turns away and he forgets what you have done to him. Did you get that? Did you miss that? What have you done? You ever hang out with someone like that? They're like, let's go do something probably illegal. And they're like, I don't know. Come on, man. It'll be fun. Come on. And then you find yourself doing something really dumb. And then at the end of it all, they're like, man, what did you do? What did I do? I wasn't the mastermind of this. Let me tell you what. You need to get out of here because what you did really upset your brother. He, you know, he intends on killing you. It makes him feel good inside. You know, funny. He doesn't want to kill mom. So then I will send and bring you back from that. You know, in other words, what that tells me is, is that mom never saw a day when Esau changed his mind. Because had he, she would have sent for him. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? So Rebecca said to Isaac, I am so weary of my life because of the daughters of Chet. That's the Hittites. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Chet, like those of the daughters of the land, what good is my life to me? And that's how the chapter ends. She ends with these words. What good is my life to me? And an interesting statement to make on this. Uh, my, wife's, my life's going to be worthless if Jacob marries a girl from around here, like that other son of yours who married two of them. Now, beloved listeners, we go to prayer. Where are you at today? Now, look, at if you don't know the Lord Jesus and you came in here and said, I don't know what church has for me, that makes sense to me. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, then my prayer is that you would actually intend to make God 
make God everything. And as you do, you would ask him to make you a blessing. Could you imagine? To me, to be honest, I can't think of a bigger blessing for me than being one. Because I know what it's like to be a curse for other people. Some of you know that. Where, man, you walk in a room and you know the room is not going to be better when you left it. It'll be better the moment you left it for that reason. But you didn't leave a legacy of anything good. And I also know what it's like to walk in a room hopeful, like this room, and knowing God's going to do something beautiful with all of us. Now, where are you at? Do you know that our God is not blind? Our God is not deceived. But He has openly offered the invitation for us to stand in the name of His Son, Jesus the Christ. Christ is offering to cover us in His blood so that all of our guilt be covered. He's willing to clothe us with Himself so that all of our flesh be ridded. All of our fleshly nature. He's to give us the aroma of life. Now, you can just stand there on your own imperfect. But if God went through all of this work just to show you that the sacrifice was acceptable, won't you accept the offer of Christ's love? He's offering it to you. Why would you say no? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. What a wonderful romp through a dysfunctional family. I want to thank you, Jesus, that this was the family you came from. That you didn't wait until you found a perfect family to step in. And I want to thank you because you don't wait until our families are perfect before you step in them either. You don't wait until we're perfect before you step in. As a matter of fact, you know we'll never be without you. And the only perfection we ever get is the part that you offer us as we stand in your stead in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Father, your only begotten Son. And I pray right now, Lord, first of all, for every believer here, that you make us from, you take us out of the bless me Bible church and you move us to a place of make me a blessing Bible church. Make me someone that can be blessing others. We recognize we don't want just the goods, Lord. You've given us a mission, a responsibility. And that calling is something we need to stand on. And I pray we would. So, Father, please right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, minister to us. Show us where we're in it for the wrong reasons. And show us how we could lay our lives before you right now and be changed. And I pray that this fellowship be one where every part of the body functions right. And that we all say, Lord, use me in whatever way you desire. But finally, if there be any or many who have not accepted the gift of Jesus the Christ, but know today they need to stand in the name of God's Son. I just pray right now that you would do something profound in this time. Convince them by your Spirit. And so if that's you, I ask you to pray this prayer with me. And at the end, as you listen, if you agree, then I ask you to give a strong, resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. And here it is. God in heaven, I confess to you, I am not perfect. But rather than I am a sinner, I am faulty. I've done wrong. And I recognize you as a perfect king punish all wrong. 
But even as you set in motion long before I was born, you've shown how I can take my curse and lay it upon one who is innocent. Now we recognize that Jacob's mom wasn't innocent. But we recognize your son is. Just like that innocent animal that would perish. And so I lay my life before you. And as you offer to take all of my sins out of me, all of my guilt out of me, remove it now, I pray. And place within me your Son in its stead. Clothe me in Christ. Wash me clean in your blood. And in that, I ask that you do something profound in my life. Make me a blessing. Give me new life as Jesus clearly proved the payment was enough by raising again that He came alive out of that tomb. That my sins have been not just covered, but washed away. So thank You for that. And I say yes to Your gift of love, Your gift of Your Son. I'm Yours. Have me. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.